Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. A huge engine failure, it appears, for Erica. The smoke funneling out of the back of the car. Stanfield drives by. On this week, we talk to race-winning driver Justin Ashley and race-winning crew chief Mike Green. Yep, both guys from the same team. And it's Trip Tatum for the first time in his career. 370 flat, 330 miles an hour. We'll talk about the world of pro drag racing and winning in pro drag racing through the eyes of a driver and a crew chief. Bobby Bodie's 074, and he blows the body off the car. Going through the finish line stripe, Bobby maintains control of the automobile. This is the NHRA Insider. Number 16 is going to take out number one. He left on a, by a day and a half. Both Manson Hines bikes are out, and it is crazy town at Pro Stock Motorcycle. Hey, everybody, it's Brian Loans back with another episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast coming off a great Lucas Oil NHRA Winter Nationals in Pomona, California at In-N-Out Pomona Drag Strip. What a way to kick things off this long-standing and long-term relationship with In-N-Out Burger that NHRA has forged. It is going to be fantastic. We've got to see the tip of the iceberg, if you will, this weekend. We got to see the track, how revitalized it looked, how beautiful the signage is, the the hamburger trucks that were all over the place they were fantastic the fans loved it and it's only going to get bigger from here you know we had a great winter nationals in terms of performance we had a great mission foods too fast too tasty on saturday with our funny car top fuel and pro stock competitors getting after it Uh, we look at the winners and how they won this race whether we're talking about dallas glenn and pro stock You know, I have to only imagine that this is a good weight off of Dallas Glenn's shoulders. He is a guy who really does expect to win when he comes into the racetrack. And we saw it. We didn't see a sophomore slump. I'm not going to call it a sophomore slump. He had a solid season. What we saw was uh, people like me in the world of drag racing that look at Dallas Glenn and think of him as an ever constant threat. He didn't quite generate the results we thought he would last year. Well, that appears to have moved in the right direction. An early season win for a racer in pro stock is absolutely a big deal. Nitro Funny Car, Matt Hagen getting it done. To me, that was a great story. But the Terry Haddock story to me um, in Funny Car really is just a fantastic, fantastic story of a team that looks better than it has maybe the, ever in, in NHRA drag racing. An IHRA champion uh, about a decade and a half ago. You know, we know Terry's story. We know that he's out there doing it with what he can do it with. Um, but this year, he has concentrated on his funny car. He has great people that are in his camp now, experienced people in his camp. Um, he has some um, mechanical c- consultation services going on. You know, let's call it inside the inside the, the fences out there. And what we saw was a 4.0 car, the most consistent race car he has ever had, at least that I've ever seen. And we saw him drive his way to a semifinal. He didn't get there because of a bye, like he did napping. He won fair and square the first two rounds of competition in Pomona. He puts himself on the Too Fast, Too Tasty Challenge the next time we have it which won't be in Vegas and it won't be in Charlotte because those are four wide races and we don't uh, we don't do it at the four wide events. So we'll be picking that up in a few races, but it is spectacular to see Terry having that success, his genuine appreciation for the help, his genuine appreciation for his team. All of that was really on full display. And what can we say about Dickie Venables and Matt Hagen? What we can say, at least from my seat, is that we saw a win that is different than most any other wins we tend to see out of Dickie Venables and Matt Hagen. It was not about low ET every round. It was not about thundering numbers. It was about a driver being on point, 32 light. I mean, the guy crushed a tree all day and a crew chief that had a very clear, seemingly plan to put that thing in the mid to low 90s and leave it there. And 
it's a great kind of thing that in the moment you don't re- you kind of realize what you're looking at in the moment but the really what you're looking at is almost the ultimate style of team victory for Matt Hagen and Dickie Venables in that situation I wasn't in the pit area. I wasn't in the trailer, but I would have had to imagine at some point when they talk about how they're going to approach the day and how they're going to approach round by round, I'm going to have to imagine at some point Dickie said, hey, man, I'm comfortable with getting you this far, meaning I'm comfortable with giving you a race car that's going to go XYZ 392, 393, and how about you take us the rest of the way there? And if that isn't the coolest kind of full team strategy you can have, I don't know what is. To me, that's what we watched. You know, we watched that car just making runs, making runs, making runs, and a driver that was just very much keyed into the starting line, very much on his game as a professional drag racer, and um, the, the conglomeration of all that was, of course, a Wally in Top Fuel, which will be the subject of our show today. It is Justin Ashley and Mike Green, so we're going to talk about the wins in Phoenix and Pomona from the perspective of a driver from the perspective of a crew chief. We're going to talk about both of, to both of these guys, about a couple of different things, but also some of the same things, because I'd like to kind of hear different answers to some of the same questions because of the you know job responsibilities of a crew chief to a driver, the, um, the day-to-day responsibilities, where people came from, how they got here, and certainly what we're looking at performance-wise. You know, I, I can't, uh, I can't but, but help look at with that Phillips Connect car right now and Yes, it's leading the points, which is fine, but it's also really looking intimidating. You know, we see these cars occasionally come up that look intimidating, and and sometimes it lasts for a stretch of a couple of races. Sometimes it lasts for seasons. The Capco Contractors car, that car at the height of its powers a few years ago, and they're certainly not far back from being at the height of their powers again, but at the height of their powers a few years ago, you can't tell me that wasn't an intimidating car. How many rounds did they win via intimidation? performance-wise, expectation-wise, other people trying to measure up to what they knew they'd have to face. And so I honestly think we're starting and will, so long as that team, the Phillips Connect team, continues to do what they're doing, and there's no reason to believe they won't, you're going to start seeing that more and more with Justin Ashley in that in this sport, success kind of begats success. Your reputation always precedes you here in drag racing. And, you know, he had the 13 light. We'll talk about that, which was otherworldly because it was not a deep stage 13. They had identical 60 foot times. He and Torrance did. And Torrance was flickering the ball. They were both in the same position, uh, give or take. Um, we're going to talk about Mike Green's tuning. We're going to talk about stealing that number one spot at the last moment, winning the too fast, too tasty challenge on Saturday. Really touch on their whole race weekend and, and why this is a a unit that is certainly pumping on all eight cylinders right now and, and getting the job done. For the you know overall energy and excitement level of uh, Pomona, there was certainly some some stuff that was just made you put your head in your hands, and uh, I cannot express how bad I think anybody that uh, has a, a, a grain of feeling or understanding of drag racing, how bad you get a feel for the DHL team. Um, you know, I... If anybody had a, a couple of days vacation planned, if anybody had a couple of days with the family planned, if the guys at the chassis shop thought they were going to get a couple of nights off this week, that's out the window. They lost, effectively lost two cars in the span of two days, and we race again in now less than two weeks. So that is going to require a Herculean effort. Thankfully for their team and their resources, uh, they will throw whatever they need to throw at it. But 
there is a time window here. And one of the most compelling stories is going to be what that time window is. What day did they receive a chassis? What day did they complete a car? Are they going to get a brand new uh, precision built race cars chassis? Or are they going to do something differently? What is going to happen here with that to get them ready in two weeks? That is going to be, to me, in Funny Car, the most fascinating story coming into Las Vegas. And we'll certainly update you on the progress next week and, and when we understand kind of what's going on behind the scenes. But safe to say, it is a full court press and it is a full court press that maybe is only capable of being executed by a Coletta Motorsports, by an organization with the amount of uh, manpower they have because they're going to have to put every every available set of hands that's, that's capable on to getting themselves back to the racetrack. Um, you know, Ron Caps. Uh, let's not forget about Ron Caps here, and and not to say he's flying under the radar because he's going rounds every single race, and he may not be collecting the Wallies, if you will, at the end of the weekends, but he's there, and it's the points, and it's the points, and it's the points, and it's that slow drip of this twenty-plus race season, a regular season that uh, is is a dozen and a half races, so to speak. So. Um, I think Ron probably likes it a little bit. I think I, if I was in Ron's position, I'd like it a little bit. Like, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and pay attention to a couple of these other guys as I'm over here kind of sneakily uh, making sure that I maintain enough, enough forward progress, enough success rate that you will be talking about me at the end of the season. I may become a three-time in a row champion because if you perform on the way they do week in and week out, that's what it is. That's what the grind is. Not necessarily shooting up to the top of the charts every once in a while and grabbing a trophy, but at the grind of consistent, repeatable, reliable, week-to-week performance. Nose to the grindstone type stuff. Great weekend. I, I just can't stress enough about how fun it was out there. Uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, there's people online, oh, the crowd this, the crowd that. Um, the, the, the cold hard facts is that crowd was larger um, all three days than it was last year. And the cold hard facts are you will continue to see a lot of work placed into rebuilding that event. Let's 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 call it what it is. Um, NHRA is is uh, on that racetrack and with will be that racetrack is part of the NHRA's you know portfolio of tracks we will visit into the next decade. The agreement signed with In and Out goes years and years and years. So the idea is that this race, this commitment within and out in NHRA, we just saw the beginning of it this week. And the beginning of it was already a move forward. It wasn't a quantum leap forward. It wasn't a, an Olympic long jump forward. But it was that first step. And I don't think anybody that walked into the gate at Pomona who had been going there for years didn't look around and say, oh, this is cool. And so as we get progressing through our season and we, and we start looking toward the finals, which is a long way to go to get there, um, I think you're going to see even more commitment, even more resources and energy there. So um, for all the people at home that are that are rubbing their you know rosary beads or whatever, their worry stone or whatever you want to say, you don't have to do that. Uh, there is a commitment to Pomona, and I'm glad there is, and that commitment is going to yield us results going down the road. So just wait and see. You don't believe me? That's fine. Uh, you can you can record this section and then play it back for me in a year's time when we're sitting here going, man, it's it's growing. It's growing and growing. So all that is great. Uh, Vegas is going to be a banger, as it always is. The crowd there is promising to be humongous. And um, pre-sales been going really well in Charlotte as well. So the four wide races, whether you love them, whether you hate them, the fans 
do come out in droves. People watch it. People enjoy it. It may not be your flavor, but I promise you it is the flavor of many, many people. Plus, if you don't want to go to the four-wide race, you get 19 other options. You got 19 other options. You could even go back to these tracks and see us race two-wide at them if you want to visit Charlotte or Vegas, but don't like four-wide, then come to fall. Then you get both the two-wide racing as well. So without further ado, I think I will introduce my first guest, who will be Justin Ashley, driver of the Phillips Connect Top Fuel Dragster. We'll talk to him when we come back on this episode of the NHRA Insider Post Pomona. Stay with us. And so we are back with our first guest on the NHRA Insider Podcast. He drives the Phillips Connect Top Fuel Dragster. He won the Too Fast, Too Tasty Challenge on Saturday. Went on to win the Winter Nationals on Sunday, and he is having uh, the best start to his top fuel career. Mr. Justin Ashley, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. How are you? I would not expect any other answer uh, at this point because it is uh, <laughs> it is it is all coming up aces for you guys right now, and a lot of hard work has led to this point. Yeah, it really has. To be honest with you, you know it's funny. You go out there, we're only three races into the year, and you see the kind of results that we've had. But the reason we've been able to have those results is because of all the work that the team has put in, in the off season. To be honest with you, we knew that coming into the year the field in 2023 especially in top fuel is going to be extraordinarily tough yeah we are very best repaired still early on we see how difficult it actually is out there but obviously super happy with the results and we got a long way to go uh so we still got to continue to learn and continue to grow but uh, i really like where we're at after the first three races of the year and you know to be um phoenix and and pomona had a, kind of a couple of different personalities right i mean the the racetrack in phoenix was very difficult to traverse early in the weekend didn't matter if you're in a, a top field car or a funny car it was just a it was an overall you know really challenging kind of surface which i think came around on sunday to a degree but we've talked about pomona and it seemed to be a little bit different almost off out of the out of the gate everybody was able to find their way down and kind of chip away at it so if you could talk a little bit about that um the, the kind of different profiles of the two weekends yeah, it really was very different. You know, you're right about that. When we went to Phoenix, you saw a lot of people really struggle to get down the racetrack during qualifying, uh, especially, uh, you know, those first one or two sessions. It's made yeah. things tricky. Uh, like you said, Sunday was a new day. Uh, people were able to go out there and uh, run a little bit better on Sunday just because they were able to make three laps beforehand. But it was tough out there, man. The track was different. Uh, than I think everyone expected. Yeah. I think the weather was really good, so we expected to have fast time. Maybe the track conditions didn't necessarily match the weather conditions, so I think that's why you saw a lot of that. And then going into Pomona, uh, you know, it was fast, pretty much right out of the gate. Most people went down the racetrack right away in Q1, mm-hmm. and when you're able to do that, it kind of opens up the window for you as a team to be more aggressive during Q2 and Q3, whether you're competing for the Too Fast, the Too Close Challenge or not. You know, you're going out there and knowing you're already pretty much solidly in the show uh, allows you to be a bit more aggressive. So uh, a lot of really fast race cars, uh, a lot of really close racing. Oh, yeah. I don't remember what the qualifying ladder was, but uh, I know obviously number one was 370 and then all the way to 373 to 375 was all pretty much grouped uh, in the same range. So not surprising at all. It's what we expect, but you definitely saw some better racing. Uh, some more consistent racing, a lot more cars going down the racetrack in Pomona. And, you know, the Too Fast, Too Tasty, you know, we rolled that out in, in Arizona for the first one. We're not going to do it again until we go back to a, a two-wide race after our, our pair of four-wides that are coming. But, you know, to me, I, was, I wasn't I was skeptical about the program. I thought it was going to be cool. And then in Phoenix, I was like, no, this is great. And it, and it, and it, it really came out of the gate in, in an interesting fashion. And then to me, it was, it was just as good in Pomona. And I do, it, it, 
it made me watch those runs in a different way. I mean, not just to say it to say it, but I, when you watch those, the, the last two pairs in that second qualifying session and then the final pair in the third session, it is a different experience and it's really cool. It really is. I think it's very cool. Like you, I really didn't know what to expect. Yeah. But at the end of the day, there's nothing bad about adding more meaningful races to oh, the yeah. weekend. No, and you could see that. I mean, normally I was thinking about it when we were in Pomona is you kind of go up there for Q2. It's your normal qualifying approach. And now mentally, this is something totally different, something outside of our comfort zone, but it's really twofold. Number one, it's great for the fans because they love it. You're no longer competing just against the clock. Yep. You're competing against each other. And it kind of gives the fans either one side or the other side to root for. And then not only do you have a chance to win $10,000, not only do you have a chance to win a specialty event, but you have a chance to collect more championship points, which are going to be added after Indy. And whether you get those few points now or whether you get them closer to the countdown, they're all just as meaningful. Yeah, They all add up just the same amount. So there's definitely more on the line for the teams. Um, and I really think it's great. So I think Mission Foods, this idea that they put together with NHRA was something totally outside the box. And I think it's paid dividends early on, and you can see that. Yeah, it really has. And, you know, you were the first person to do it, but I think we will see it or through the season more just because of the volume of these things we're going to do. But to snag that, to snag the money and the number one spot in the same run was great. I mean, that was like, a, it's, it's a, it's a great kind of double up in a lot of ways. You run that 70 in the, in the final of the thing and, and not only get the check and get the medallion in the hat, but also grab the number one position. So it, uh, it carried with it extra weight. Oh, it definitely did. You know, it's funny. You're just really focused on, seeing that wind light and then you see the wind light and then I was able to turn the corner and look at the time slip and I said, man, Tommy Garago <laughs> and Mike Green are so good at what they do. Uh, they really are. It was incredible. So like you said, it was twofold. It was great. Okay, we won the challenge, but then our Phillips Connect team also qualified number one and in a 14-car ladder, it becomes that much more oh, important. Enormous, yeah. We knew the importance of that approach. I mean, look, there is absolutely no looking past round one, period. And Kristen's a great racer. I have a lot of respect for what she's doing and what her program is doing. And they went out the race before in Phoenix. I was very aware they went to 384. Yeah. And I was very aware that more than likely they were going to go down the racetrack. And she put an 058 on me. Yep. So you can't look past anybody. But knowing you had a second round by the next round, uh, just from qualifying number one, added a lot more importance. So that was definitely a great day on Saturday. Uh, you know, Mike Reed and Tommy Delago, they've uh, really done an outstanding job. You know, and I think it's interesting, too. We talk about it in sports, whether it's, you know, football, baseball, whatever, like the idea of an emotional letdown, so to speak. And I'm not sure we've seen that happen yet, and I'm not sure we will. But the idea of understanding that, yes, we won this deal on Saturday and that's great, but we're actually here to really win the race on Sunday. And I think that comes down to discipline and leadership to a degree. But you know, how how do you or, or kind of what was that Saturday afternoon like? I'm sure it wasn't as as robust as say a, a Sunday afternoon race celebration, but you got to at least enjoy it for a minute, right? Well, it's so tough to win anything. It really is. So I think it is, like you said, it's a mentality. It's an approach. So for us, yes, we definitely enjoyed it. But after we enjoyed it, it was right back to work, which is relatively quick transition. So, yeah. you know, we took the car, took some pictures, went right back, service, put it away and got ready for Sunday because ultimately those were our goals was to win that challenge and then win on Sunday. And ultimately, like you said, the big races on Sunday. So yes, it does come from leadership. It comes from top to bottom. And I think it really comes from being non-emotional. It doesn't matter whether it's qualifying, yeah. uh, whether it's first round or final round, going up there, 
focusing on your own lane, running as quick and as fast as we think that we can run in that particular lane, taking it one round at a time and letting the results and the points accumulate at the end of the weekend and see where we're at. So that's always been our approach. That'll continue to always be our approach. And top to bottom, like you said, it starts with leadership and works its way down through the rest of the team. So that was our approach. It's so important to enjoy those wins, whether it's a challenge or a race. But that focus, like you said, it has to immediately shift to what's next, that upcoming race, and what we can do better. One of the highlight moments for you over the course of the weekend that had us all kind of leaning forward and rubbing our eyes was that the 13 light you had, and um, <laughs> and, and it was, I mean, it was awesome. And and obviously, we, you know, whenever we see a light like that, we immediately look down and see the 60 foot time, and it was like, nope, that was that was an honest light, that was an honest 13. And I know, I I think you had briefly mentioned that um, you kind of sat down and, and debriefed after the fact with, I'm sure, with the team and, and with your pop and everything, and you know, was some of that conversation like, okay, dude. This was awesome, but let's not be quite that tight. And I know you knew, you know that as well. But but what was that kind of follow up chat? Yeah, I was shocked. <laughs> I uh, to be honest with you, because all you know, I looked at the time slip. You know, I felt like okay, I hit it pretty good. All I know is I saw yellow. Yeah, that's all I know. So I said, listen, guys, I put it in. I saw yellow, and it came out of thirteen. It's like okay, great. But let's make sure this doesn't happen again. You know, it's, it's obviously, look, I'm very grateful. Yeah. It was a good problem to have. Yeah. But that, let's be honest, that's cutting it too close. That is, that no, is in a way, very dangerous territory to be in. It's very, very dangerous. So all I know is I went up there, I saw yellow, and I'm going to continue to do the same routine. It's, it's, at some point, too, mentally, you know, I actually, I spoke with my dad, I spoke with Mike and Tommy, I spoke with Antron about it because you also don't want to go the opposite direction. Oh, sure. You have to be careful not to say, Oh, you know, I cut this, so let me lay back. That's the biggest mistake you can make. So it's just maintaining that same approach. Um, You know, I I really can't speak to what happened on that run. I don't know why it was a 13, to be honest with you, but all I could say is I saw a yellow. Thankfully, we had a fast hot rod and we got the win. So at that point, it was okay. Like you said, debrief, go up there and um, put the car in shallow and do the same thing over and over again. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, and you mentioned, you know, Krista had uh, the best reaction time of her entire career racing you in the first round thus far, and it was, you know, it's one of those things that we talk about, you know, sports psychology, so to speak, and and this is what you're going to be dealing with all season long, right, because people know. Uh, the, the, the reputation precedes you in the best of ways. So you're going to get everybody's best shot. And that is, you know, that is either something I think uh, if you're a great racer, you can take that and understand it. If you're if you're somebody that's up there that's doing this in a less consistent basis than you are, you probably overanalyze the idea that, oh, I have to keep doing this. But the reality is this is kind of the window you live in. But you have to know that, right? You have to know that you are going to get everybody's best shot in the starting line. I do. You know, I, I kind of figured as much, um, and I've seen that uh, throughout the season, the early part of the season. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's I think it's good. I really do. I think it's healthy for the sport. I mean, first of all, you know, the reaction times are great. Yeah. But none of that matters. You can go up there and cut whatever you want to cut. Oh, absolutely. Unless you, have, you know, unless you have a fast race car, it's irrelevant. Unless you have a car that reacts well, the reaction time is not going to be there anyway. Yeah. So. It really is a true a true team effort, but iron sharpens iron, and that's what we've seen so far, really since last year in the top field class. So when your reaction times get good, everyone's reaction time is getting good, and it's because, really, we all have no choice. Right. No, that's, <laughs> that's a great point. If we want to go out there it's a great and point. win races, we have to, because these. it's like sometimes it almost feels like pro stock. 
you're out there, there's cars running 69, 70, uh, 71, all grouped together, eight or 10 cars. There's literally, it feels like every car on race day can go out there and win, and it's so difficult to do. So we're all making each other better, um, and I think that you see that. I think it's healthy. I think the sport is in a good place. The class is in a good place, and it's really ultimately good for the fans, which all drivers and all teams love. You know, I think it's interesting. Mike Green's going to be the second guest on the show because I want to I want to kind of hear the win from the crew chief's perspective as well as the driver. But also the other thing I want to talk to both you guys about is the idea of the kind of short term and then the long game of a season. And, and obviously the short term comes into how do we win this next round? How do we win this next day or whatever? And the long game comes in with how do we maintain ourselves to be as good in the spring? How can we be that good in the fall? So what are the lessons if at any you took out of last year from your perspective as a competitor and as the guy in the seat of the car for that long haul version. We know that we know your take on the short on the short window version because you go up there and you crush it every time you're at the starting line. But in the long haul version, what did you leave last year thinking about considering over the winter time? Well, you know, it sounds kind of cliche, but I think really the most important thing that that I, and look Mike Green and Tommy DeLago have a lot of experience and I'm learning more and more from them and this team each and every day. So I'm sure, you know, whatever I say, they probably know, been there, done that already. But, you know, for me, it's literally taking it not only one race at a time, but taking it one round at a time. And it's tough. It's a difficult thing to do, especially at the end of the year when you're fighting for a championship and, you know, you can go to your phone every two minutes and look at the points. Yeah. And it's not an easy thing to do to stay away from that. But, I think that was probably the most important thing that I learned is to take it one qualifying round at a time, one race, one eliminations round at a time, and not even focus on the points. Just take it one round at a time, and at the end of the day, you add them up, you accumulate the points and see where you're at, because ultimately, none of that matters unless you do your job on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So long-term, I just think that gives you, that gives our Phillips Connect team the best opportunity to win, is to just take it one round at a time, stay within ourselves, not necessarily focus on the points and just focus on being the best team that we can be and then add them up at the end of the year and see where we're at. I think anytime, you know, you, you talk to people that do something at a high level, well, whether they're a performer or they're an athlete or they're a race driver, kind of whatever they're doing, um, you oftentimes hear people in those positions talk about you know, a little bit of fear in the back of their head, not like overriding, you know, cold sweats fear, but a little bit of fear that, you know, I don't want to suck today or I can't suck today. I need to not suck today. And it's maybe a positive thing, but do you ever get that? And I don't mean you're like afraid. I mean, is there ever like in the back of your mind, you understand what the job at hand is here. And until you do it, is there ever that little thing in the back of your head that says, I need to be awesome today and I can't be anything less? Every day, <laughs> literally always. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you go up there on Sunday, of course, you know, there's that feeling. Um, you know, athletes feel that way. I'm sure there's a lot of other drivers that feel that way. But, of course, you know, every time I wake up on Sunday, I, I think about that all the time, even on Friday and Saturday. You know, we, as drivers, I believe have a significant obligation to do right by our team, yeah. to do right by our sponsors, and winning is a big part of that. And of course, you know, I don't want to be a reason that, you know, we set our team back. But at the end of the day, it gives me a tremendous amount of peace of mind knowing that we have the team that we do. And I don't mean the results on the racetrack, but I mean a team that really is a family that has each other's back. Because let's face it, we're all going to make mistakes. Yeah, We're all human. Um, we're three races in. 
I know we've won two races, but I've made countless mistakes already over those first two or three races um, that I've been able to learn from. So we're all going to make mistakes. So yeah, I think that fear is certainly there for me, but um, it's it's something that that I guess kind of comes with the territory. And yeah, so to uh, me, it's like a healthy. Shifts. It's like a healthy fear. It is. You know, it's like a and and. You know, it's interesting to me. I, I always, I, I always think that you know, again, uh, you know, your football uh, team allegiance may vary as those of you watching or listening to this. But as a New England guy, I, I always think Bill Belichick's the, you know, inarguably the greatest coach in, in NFL history, whether you like him or not. But I always think that he might wake up in the morning and think, "Damn, I hope I don't suck today." Like just a little bit. Maybe it only yeah. lasts for five seconds, and then he goes on about his day. But I feel like that's a healthy thing to kind of have every once in a while pop up. I think every once in a while it's not bad, but I think ultimately the most important thing is to be able to stay positive. Yeah. So like you said, it's a healthy fear. Uh, it's kind of that fear of failure, but ultimately if you go out there and you're afraid to make mistakes, that's the worst thing you can do. I got out there and just do the same thing every time and, and be as aggressive and uh, try and make the most out of it each and every run. So that's kind of the approach that we have. So yeah, you know, we feel that negativity. I feel that negativity sometimes, but um, obviously once that helmet goes on, it's important to do everything that I can, everything that we can to you know, push that aside and just go out there and race. And I think probably a lot of drivers do the same. Yeah, I agree. And, and one of the things I'm always interested in too, is, is obviously you are regimented inside the race car. There is, there is processes, uh, processes and procedures that you follow. And that leads to the consistency we see in the starting line, but on a race weekend, how regimented are you outside the car? And I realize there's autograph sessions and there's this obligation and that obligation, but how regimented are you on a typical race weekend, either with what you're eating, with what time you go to bed? I know some guys are are like locked in almost OCD level on certain things what you drink on Sunday morning whether it's a couple of cups of coffee how regimented are you on a race weekend with the normal kind of human things that you have to do you know it's interesting that's a great question and like you said everyone's approach is different for me I'm very very consistent uh with the routine uh with the things that I'm eating uh really throughout the week but especially Friday Saturday and Sunday Nutrition is something that I value. I think it's something that's important, and I think it correlates to performance. And then what time I wake up, what time I go to bed, what time I get to the track, all that stuff is important. Our team's the same way. Uh, we warm up at a specific time, we get to the track at a specific time, and we leave at a specific time. So I think our program as a whole operates that way. And then throughout the race day, of course, we have autograph sessions, we have different obligations, but in between rounds, it's strictly business off the racetrack and winning helps with that, but it's about working with Phillips Connect, building those relationships, helping them to drive revenue and work with either their employees, work with new customers that they might have, work with existing customers that they might have. So there's a lot of actual business work that goes on between the runs that I personally enjoy, but ultimately that winning helps with that, but that's what it comes down to is the business side of racing while we're at the racetrack and not inside the race car. And look, uh, you got to put the the guy who you know the guy who the company is named after in the back of the dually on the return road after you guys <laughs> won f- the the too fast too tasty. You and Rob Phillips were cruising up the return road, you know, kind of uh, waving to the fans. And let's be honest, uh, that is a highly valuable opportunity to give that guy. <laughs> it really is. I mean, I was. It's funny. I was sitting there in E two. We were getting ready to go run, and I was listening to Jason Galvin interview Rob. I'm like, this is great. It doesn't get any better than this at their home track. Yeah. Have an opportunity to qualify number one, to win the Too Fast, Too Tasty Challenge, and to win the race, to have them ride back in the dually in the winter circle. You're right. It was very, very valuable. It was a great experience for their whole team. Their whole team came out. 
Uh, we had customers and partners come out. It was very valuable for them all to be able to experience that. So it was really great all the way around. Um, they've dedicated a lot of time, energy, and effort into this program, and I'm extraordinarily grateful for that. So to be able to give back just a little bit by helping them to uh, to go into the winner's circle really means a lot. It's great. And, uh, you know, in terms of just to double back on something I forgot to ask you a couple of minutes ago, what is your range of acceptability on the starting line? And, you know, <laughs> we, we talk about a 13 is because it is kind of superhuman looking, and but it is, as we talked about, kind of a creepy number. But in terms of on a week to week basis, when you leave the racetrack, whether you win the race or not, as the guy in the seat, what is your range of acceptability on the starting line? Well, I mean, it's an interesting question. I think that ultimately it doesn't matter as long as that wind light comes on. That's number yeah. one. Yeah. Number one, the wind light's got to come on. I don't care what the reaction time is. As long as that comes on, that's what matters. But, you know, the, the expectations for myself are really I try and live in the in the 40 range. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think 50s are great, but I think ultimately 40s. And look, it's changed. Oh, absolutely. You know, if we would have this conversation, if we would, and it's got nothing to do with me. It's just got to do with, like you said, iron sharpens iron. That's it. We have to do this if we want to try and give ourselves an opportunity to win. So ultimately, I think the 40 range, uh, something in the 40s is really where I try and sit and, and feel most comfortable. But, you know, two or three years ago, even now, a 60 is a great light. Yeah. So it's just a matter of trying to do everything we can to um, take advantage of that starting line, try and help the team win. You know, I saw uh, at the end of the day, you had won the race. Uh, Joe Costello had interviewed Mike Green, and, and the starting line was kind of dispersing. And, and I saw Dustin Davis uh, kind of go over to Mike, and and those guys had kind of a, a, a bro hug up there in the starting line. And, you know, Dustin has the clutch guys all covered in soot and clutch dust and everything else. And it's such a unique thing to have Dustin Davis, a guy who has such a big stake in this team, as the clutch guy. And not to say that other teams don't have great clutch guys, they do, but nobody else has a guy that is as literally invested in the success of this team as your clutch guy. It's so unique. Our clutch guy is physically, mentally, and financially <laughs> invested in this race program. He really is. It's unbelievable. So, right. So, Dustin's the co owner of the team. He's also the clutch guy. There is no other owner that I know of uh, that is also the clutch guy. So this is a guy that's focusing on the day-to-day -day operations of the team and then going out there and actually on the floor. He's at the track. I mean, we have a routine where we're at the track four hours before we run. I feel like he's at the track eight hours before we run. <laughs> Every weekend. It's actually, it's actually incredible. And then when we're not running, he's in the trailer on his laptop working on his business. So listen, make no mistake about it. Yeah. A large part of the success that we've been able to have as a program is because of the people that we have. And it starts with Dustin. He's done a wonderful, wonderful job of working extraordinarily hard to help put this team in a position to win races and to really ultimately achieve our ultimate goal, which would be to win championships. So Dustin has done an amazing job. It's fun. Uh, it's exciting to see a owner on the floor working as the clutch guy. And he's kind of, he hides out because people ask, oh, where's Dustin? Where is he? He's back there working on the clutch. Well, why is he working on the clutch? I don't understand. So it's fun. Yeah. Uh, it's unique. It's something totally different. That really is. And, uh, you know, we'll switch gears a little bit as we move into our, our brief uh, two-race interlude into the world of, of four-wide drag racing. Uh, this is something that is obviously a fan favorite. We're going to have massive crowds in, in Las Vegas. We're going to have massive crowds in Charlotte. Both of the tracks are having incredible kind of pre-sale numbers for these races, which you always love to hear. Um, when we talk about four-wide racing for you, ultimately, if you get lane choice three times on Sunday, where do you, where do you pick? Where do you like 
like to be? It's hmm. a good question. I think I think the outer lanes are probably the ones that I feel most comfortable in. Yeah. It's it's really the good news is you have four qualifying runs, so you're able to make one lap in each lane. Yeah. The staging is a little bit quirky in lanes two and three when you're staging in between because you're staging across to the opposite side B, which is different. Yep. So if there's a preference, I'm sure a lot of drivers will say the same thing. Lanes one and lane four, but ultimately it's a matter of which lane we think we can run the quickest in, and then ultimately it'll be up to me to be able to adapt from there. So four rod racing is definitely quirky. It's a little bit different, but when you have 40,000-plus horsepower at the line all at once, uh, it's unpredictable, it's fun, and some crazy things can happen. Oh, it's deafening. It, and I, I explain that to people. It's like they've been to you know a normal event, and uh, and you think it just can't get any louder, and it's like it actually can. It actually can get louder. It is uh, – <laughs> When I was working on the starting line years ago before I got, uh, you know, promoted upstairs, so to speak, it would be like, I mean, your, your fillings would rattle. Even though you had your earplugs in and they had all the, the hearing protection on, it is still almost like a painful sensation when all four cars leave at the same time. Oh, it's nuts. And I, the first time I heard it, I was in the car and it was the, the quad <laughs> before me running. It must have been 20, I think 2021 20, it okay. was. And I was like, what in the world just happened? <laughs> <laughs> it's really it's it's unbelievable it really is incredible well man i appreciate you taking the time today it's always great to talk to you justin and and you know to see what this team is doing um and not just you like you said the whole operation end to end i'm looking forward to talking to mike green here in a couple of minutes but you know i think that uh there there are not many there are not many mistakes like people don't mistake their way into wins especially in in top fuel anymore so to see you do it back to back which is likely something that's not going to happen a lot for anybody this year is really impressive well thank you i appreciate that and you hit it on the head complete team effort uh i'm fortunate i feel honored to be able to drive this race car uh it's been running really really great and we have a lot of great partners that make that happen from phillips connect to toyota to national debt relief and everybody in between so uh, really fortunate to be able to do what we do and excited to have the team that we have. Are you doing anything on the week off? I know a lot of people are bouncing off to go spend a couple of days in the sun or go relax somewhere. Are you nose to the grindstone or are you going to take a couple of days to yourself? Yeah, no, I'm just going to work. So I'll work through the week and uh, see where it takes us. But, uh, you know, I feel pretty much ready to get back to the racetrack already. So I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much, Justin. He has won two of the first three races of the season. We'll be coming in hot to the four wide nationals. When we come back to the NHRA Insider Podcast, it will be Justin's crew chief, Mike Green. We're going to hear his perspective on how they got the job done in Pomona and Phoenix. We'll be right back. All right, we are back here in the NHRA Insider Podcast. We talked to Justin Ashley. Now we switch gears to go from the cockpit to the engine compartment and the crew chief lounge. Mike Green, how you doing, man? Oh, doing great. So, Mike, this has been a really, really great start for this team and and certainly no big surprise, right? I mean, you guys were a championship contender last year, but let's talk a little bit about uh, maybe some of the key reasons you feel like the last two out of the last three races have have gone your way. Yeah, you know, I think we, you know, we worked at uh, over the winter, you know, we kind of let the championship slip away from us last year and, uh, you know, so we we had a little longer winter than normal and uh, we went to work proving the proven the uh, areas that we needed to work on, you know, as a team. And uh, Tommy uh, DeLago, you know, he, he came down here during the week uh, and we spent a lot of time, uh, you know, just trying to improve the areas that we thought that uh, that would make us a better, more consistent car. So we, uh, you know, we worked on that and, uh, you know, went and did some testing and then uh, went to Gainesville and didn't have the greatest outing, but 
but we we saw the potential in the thing. Even we made a you know we ran made a pretty bad run first round there, but it didn't look bad to us. You yeah, know? So, right. so we so we went to Phoenix pretty positive. I don't know that the rest of the team was as positive as Tommy and I were, but. <laughs> But uh, it it all looked it all looked pretty good to us. So we went there and uh, you know and just kept working on it, and it, it's gotten better and better for sure. You know, the Phoenix racetrack obviously was was uh, you know a riddle wrapped in an enigma to to get everybody going on that weekend. And how much did it change Friday to Sunday? I know what it looked like. I mean, it looked like it went from a skating rink to something that was pretty acceptable by the time we got to Sunday. But from your perspective as a crew chief, how how much did it change? And was that more change you normally see in a surface over the course of a weekend, or is it about the same? Uh, I think more, but I think as much there as our track data didn't match up with the grip we saw in our race cars. Okay, and even you know, and even as coaches, we walk out there, you yeah. know, and we walk on it, and we go, okay, this feels pretty good, you know. And the grip numbers said it was really good, but none of the cars could go down the track, and it was that was the baffling thing when. You know, because all the all the teams have those numbers. You oh, know, sure. whether you know, and uh, and and um, we're not sure what happened there because it fooled everybody. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't know if the the track changed. It got better and better, which it always does. You know, more spray, more cars on it, and everything. But um, but yeah, it kind of fooled us to start with, and uh, that's pretty unusual for the whole field to kind of get tricked. You know, but. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know we've uh, we knew it was going to be a little different because we raced there earlier normally and the UV was more so you know we knew it was going to be a little different than our normal Phoenix race but uh, yeah it was a little tricky for sure. Was Friday at Pomona um, a, a direct result of let's call it Friday at Phoenix in that you know we saw we saw a lot of solid runs we saw a lot of mid to low seventies and was that a was that because a more conservative approach was taken either by you or across the field, or is that simply what, what the conditions were going to yield for that Friday and first session of Pomona? Yeah, it was, it was probably better than what everybody ran. And then some of the quicker cars, like I think Doug Coletta came loose, you know, some yeah. guys that were yeah. maybe capable, you know, would have made it. were probably trying to run a 66 or sure. 67 or something, you know, didn't make it down the track. So, Generally, we're a little more conservative, you know, uh, our first run, it just kind of, you know, when we have three runs, it's not the best thing for our team because we're a little more conservative. (laughs) (laughs) If we get get two runs on Friday, we have a better shot at, you know, qualifying further up the ladder, you know, but, uh, but um, I think it was, I think everybody, you know, maybe a little more conservative too. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And and it, it was kind of like that swing where, like you said, we saw kind of the whole field miss it on Friday in, in Phoenix, whereas we saw the vast majority of the field go down in that, you know, like you said, mid-low 70s range. So that um, that does make total sense. I'm not going to try to hang a number on you here, but how many winter nationals was that for you? Oh, boy, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. I don't think it's been a ton. I don't know that I've won a bunch of winter nationals. Well, I, I just mean being at the race, not necessarily the wins, but how many oh. how many times have you have you have even if it's a round number? How many was that for you, give or take? Oh, I've probably been going to the winter nationals since '84. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, 
Yeah, it's been a few. Yeah, no, it's great. And and I mean, you've seen this thing from and you've as you've been going to this race over the years, you've seen it from almost every job on the race car, right? I mean, you've seen it as a young guy that was just getting into the sport as a crew guy, and you've obviously seen it as a, to the top level. Now you are as a crew chief, and it's kind of an interesting thing to consider. No, for sure. I went and raced there, you know, raced alcohol cars there when I was first starting out, you know, and then, uh, you know, professionally, the first winter nationals I went to, you know, was with Daryl Gwynn, and uh, I guess it had been 87, you know, on his Budweiser dragster. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, I've raced funny cars there, I've raced, <laughs> raced a lot of cars there, but, it, you know, it's always been a great track. You know, I'm from California, so, you know, it was always uh, – you know, when I was younger, it was when I went to more often, you know, before I started going to all of them, you know, sure. I mean, but, uh, yeah, it's a great place to race for sure. No, it is. It's got its own, uh, you know, as an East coast guy, it's always the thing for me to be out there in Southern California. It's always just a, you know, one of those places that I think any fan of this sport wants to, wants to be at at least once in their, uh, in their kind of experience in drag racing. When we talk about, you know, the Phillips, rather the Phillips Connect Dragster is yours, obviously, but the Mission Foods Too Fast, Too Tasty deal um, has been really exciting. And, and I realize from your perspective, the job is the same, whether it's for a, a check on Saturday or a Wally on Sunday, it's to get the job or get the card on the racetrack in the best uh, way possible, given the conditions. I, I think at least from a fan's perspective, maybe even from a driver's perspective, it has added an, an interesting element to Saturdays, especially with those championship points. You know, it really has, and I, I think we try to look at it as it's qualifying. Yeah. Because, um, you know, that's that's what sets us up to win the race. Yes. And, uh, you know, but, um, but yeah, having the opportunity to race, I think, the, I think the drivers maybe like it more because they get, you know, they get very limited time. Yes. To race these cars. You know, yes. is, in the course of a year, you actually have competition runs only on Sunday. <laughs> and so you don't get very many, you know, so it's more opportunities for them to actually go out there and actually race. So I think it's great, uh, great for them. For us, uh, we try not to think about it like that, but yeah. then afterwards you go, well, that was some points we can use later. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think as we go, it'll, it'll, uh, sink in more to myself maybe that uh you know we try to win everything we try to oh, make yeah. every time we go out there so uh but it's a great thing that the mission company is doing and uh you know it's exciting for everybody hopefully the fans love it on saturday too yeah i think they do and and one of the questions i asked uh justin and i'd like to get your perspective on it is you know in in any sort of like pro sport we always talk about the potential for like an emotional letdown per se and so you know winning the deal saturday is one thing but you're there to win the race and so you know that idea of hey we get to go to the winner's circle and shoot some photos um maybe kind of feels like you won the race but you have to balance that right i mean it's it's it is a great thing to do the bonus money is fantastic but I guess the sign of a good team is having that discipline to show up Sunday morning like nothing had happened on Saturday, right? Yeah, you really have to. And, you know, after it's over, it's just qualifying for us. You know, and then we get back into the business of getting ready for race day. And, uh, you know, I think that, uh, like I said, I think I think the drivers probably like it because they just like to go up there and compete oh, against sure. each other. You know? But uh, for us, we just kind of reset and say, okay, that was cool. Uh let's uh let's put our game face on you know and get back to work here and get our get our equipment uh ready for sunday 
one of the things that you know we always key in on again going to that kind of driver element of it is we always key in on you know the starting line performance of the drivers it's one of the metrics that people have been measured on in drag racing for years but really we have to look at the other side of this too which is the consistency of of elapsed times and repeatability so do you think that the crew chief and or performance side of of mechanical performance side of these cars has advanced in the same way that the driver performance has meaning that as good as Amato, Bernstein, all these guys were back in the day, I'm not exactly sure they would be top shelf today. And I, I want to talk about that on the crew chief side of it. Has it tightened up that much on your side of the game as much as it has on the driver's side? Oh, I think so. Absolutely. You know, I think that, uh, you know, they were those guys, the Warren of these Amato's, Bernstein's, yeah. everything back then, they were, they were great drivers yes. in their time. But, but there was only five cars you were racing against when you were a top car. Yeah. You know, where now there's 12. (laughs) Most of them, you know, (laughs) and like any sport, I think that, uh, you know, you have to evolve. You have to, that's our job. You know, that's why we get paid to, uh, you know, to keep working and making, you know, we have a lot of rules that we have to go by, you know, and those increase all the time. So uh, what you can work on, what you can uh, fine tune on your car, whether it's the chassis, the engine, the clutch, the, you know, just all parts of it, uh, um, we continue to work on. And and that's why I think you see that the competition is so close, you know, and there's always going to be younger drivers, you know, more, I don't know. Uh, Guns there, you know. <laughs> yeah, they're they're always going to be there, but uh, but yeah, the competition is so uh, is so close now compared to years gone by. You know, for all of us, so it's 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 fun, but it's uh, you know, back in the day, we used to go up first round, and that was kind of a test run. You know, or, <laughs> yeah, you're you're going to be racing somebody pretty good usually in the first round so uh it's it's harder to win a race for sure now you know and one of the elements to to winning these races is that we don't necessarily see is the work that gets done in between rounds and and we again we talk about these drivers oh this guy averages a 40 light he averages a 30 light he's so good at the starting line but we can go right down to every job on the crew and talk about stuff like that. The guy who's doing the bottom end of the motor has to get the torque specs right. He has to do it very quickly. You got a clutch guy who just happens to be one of the guys who owns the team has to be on point and be precise within thousands on every single run. And has it always been that way? I know it's always been a thrash and it's always been precise, but are we at an era now where precision is beyond anything it ever has been? Um, it is because we uh, we just measure everything uh, closer than we used to, and all the tolerances are closer. And uh, like you said, from the bottom end guy to the guys that bolt the heads on, and the guy that services the blower, the manifold, the the clutch. You know where we used to, you know, look at five things in between rounds. Now we look at ten. Yeah. You know because it's just that much more critical to uh, to have your car go out there and run consistently on race day you know we've been we have a you know we have a fantastic crew and the guys and and they're learning all the time too but we have some good experienced guys and uh they've done such a great job of putting the car together for tommy and i you know to tune the thing and we we say all right we want to go out there and just make that same run again and it does and it's because of those guys that uh, they're capable of um you know, looking at every little detail, making sure the car's put together 100% correctly. So, uh, 
so it'll it'll have the potential of running what we try to make it run yeah <laughs> we don't always do the right thing but uh like i tell them i go i go we have a lot of ways to screw this up <laughs> you guys gotta do it right every time <laughs> You know, so, uh, I saw a cool moment from our booth after the race had finished on Sunday. Joe Costello had, uh, had interviewed you after the final round, and and uh, people were kind of dispersing, and and there was Dustin Davis. You guys had a kind of a bear hug there in the starting line, and you know he's all covered in in clutch dust and and grime and everything else. And how unique is it to have a guy that is in his position doing that particular job? And and as I said to Justin, there are a lot of great clutch guys out here that are doing this job across the the various teams, whether they're talking funny car or top fuel, but there is not another clutch guy in the world of drag racing that has as much riding on his job than Dustin Davis does. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. It's, it's still, I'm still getting used to it. You know, he's, he's my boss, you know, I mean, uh, <laughs> Um, obviously it's, 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 uh, Dustin Davis motorsports yeah. and Justin Ashby racing together. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. But, uh, but yeah, Dustin, uh, you know, uh, he's my boss and it's, uh, we joke about it, you know, I yeah. mean, and there's so many people I said, Oh, you know, you want to meet Dustin Davis? And they went, That's him there. I go, yeah, the dirty guy back there, mountain tires. <laughs> yeah. Here, come over and meet him, you know, cause his passion for the sport, like he said, he goes, I want to work on the car. You know, I can't be here all the time. So what can I do? <laughs> Cause I really want to work on the car. Yeah. So he, he did the clutch full time that the one year before I came here and then we actually hired a clutch guy. So now he's the clutch assistant, but he, you know, he works his butt off and I think he works on the car just like he works at his business. He, uh, he never stops. He's up five o'clock in the morning. He works many, many hours. And then, shoots to the racetrack so he can work on the race car and, and uh, you know, be a part of this. He's uh, he's uh, a great boss, so motivated, just loves the passion of it. You know, it's just something he's always wanted to do. And his passion spills over to all the guys, you know. And, and obviously the Ashleys are the same way. Yes. They love the sport. They love it. And they work at it, work their butts off, you know, uh, getting money for us to run the car and, uh, and, and Justin driving the thing, he uh, he's so into. He comes back after run. What can I do better? You know, I'm still learning. How can I? You know, and just it's a, it's exciting, exciting team, exciting time for us. And uh, you know, the working for Dustin Davis, it's been a. You know, I've worked for big teams yeah. mostly. You know, yep. That's my career. So coming over here and kind of building this team up, uh, it's been a blast. And uh, working with him has just been a pleasure. I brought it up to, to Justin and, and you bring up a, an excellent point when he comes back and says, what can I do better? And I think you're the only guy in the pits that could ever look at him and say, uh, how about being like 30 next time instead of 13? How about we do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, he walked in the lounge. He goes, hey, I saw you. <laughs> I go, you were just ready. Sometimes that happens. Yeah. And, uh, I think his dad said something about, did you go in a little bit in the final? He goes, no, no I, don't, I don't, that 13 scared me. I don't want to, I don't want to stage any deeper than I absolutely have to. Yeah. So, he's pretty impressive on the starting line. That's for sure. You know, I've, uh, you know, I've never seen anything like it. He's such, he's kind of the opposite of his dad. He's really calm. Yes. Doesn't really get rattled. You know, I mean, he just kind of sits in there relaxed and, uh, yeah, his it's, dad's it's up me. there. His dad's up there doing handsprings, and you know, Justin. <laughs> and sometimes we got to. Sometimes we got to tap Justin on the shoulder and say, "Hey, man, we're about to. We're right. about to race here." Yeah, that's great. Yeah. 
So for you, over the course of your career, and again, you mentioned the fact you work for so many different people, you work for so many great teams. When you were young coming in, who were the most influential people for you like that you looked at and have taken things forward in that, whether it's your leadership style, whether it's your approach, whether it's the way you manage the guys, who were the, the kind of couple of big ones for you that were in those formative years that helped kind of bring you to where you are today? Yeah, I think when I went to work for Daryl, you know, I got to work with Dale Armstrong. Yeah, that was the that was such a great early experience for me. You know, I mean, uh, Chris Cunningham worked on that car and other guys, but I was at that point I was the only full time employee. So, oh wow, it was a you know it was a Budweiser dragster. But when we were done racing, we went back to Daryl's garage and I serviced the rear end and the transmission and the clutch and that you know so yeah i got to work on every part of a top fuel car and that really really taught me of you know what these things are all about and then through that whole time working with him there was dale armstrong there you know and just i didn't talk to dale a lot i just listened mostly right <laughs> <laughs> yeah i learned a lot and then you know probably to really to run a race team was lee beard yeah. you know i went to work for Ormsby. you know he was a uh, he had such a professional way of doing it and uh certainly the couple years i worked with him there at armsby's and we were lucky enough to win a championship there and uh you know really taught me how a race team should be ran you know and uh, so those you know those couple guys there really kind of set my career in the right direction i'd say the uh, if you can if you can give me one story from that from that championship season with Ormsby and, and the specific one I'm I'm interested in is you know you have the horrendous crash in Sonoma you you thrash a car together and then all of a sudden there's the wheel stand that happens at Brainerd I mean how depressing was that and one did you guys just work 24 hours a day to get something put together for for I guess what Indy would have been the next race um. Yeah, actually, and, and we were on the we were out on the racetrack with a crash car, and Lee went, "Well, I guess this is it." And there's a guy named Chuck Shifsky. Chuck Shifsky, I, I know Chuck Shifsky. Worked on the car, and we looked at each other. And we said, "BS, we're, we're <laughs> we can we're going to do something," you know. So we had uh, Gary Ernsby Jr. He there was a our old car sitting on the showroom of Ormsby's Toyota dealership called him and said, Hey, go get that car out of the showroom and put it in the trailer and bring it out here. We're going to need it for the next race. So, you know, we talked about it and said, all right, we're doing this, you know? So we got that car and, you know, it was, uh, it was trying times, but, uh, Al Swindle was finishing us a new, a new car, you know? And, uh, I don't know. It, uh, it was quite a year, that's for sure. <laughs> and you guys at the time were one of the few, if not the only team, that actually had a shop in Indianapolis, right? You had the, you were kind of way ahead of the curve on that. There was the California, you know, the Toyota dealership, obviously that area out there. But you also had, if my understanding is correct, kind of a remote shop in Indy. Yeah, we did. Over on the old Gasoline Alley, you know, over by N Speedway, we had a shop there. And uh, um, there was a lot of indie guys that built indie car engines there, and Eloisa was carbon fiber company there, and uh, Jackie Howerton's, you know, place. The guys that we got to know being down there, but uh, but yeah, say uh, the local bar that we used to go to all the time there. They called us the boys of summer because we'd spend the summer there, <laughs> you know, and then then go back to California, you know, after the three or four months we'd spend there racing. So. Uh, 
So yeah, it was a different way to do it, but to to, to allow everybody, you know, not to do quite as much traveling, and yeah. it eventually turned into Pernell moving out here, you know, and having guys where they could buy a house, have a family, and yep. race, do this, but be centrally located. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. And last question for you, Mike, as we set up the uh, four wide nationals coming, uh, not this particular weekend, but the following, um, as we talked about with the mission, you know, side of things, your job is to get the card on the racetrack, whether it's Q1 or, or the final round. But in terms of the profile of the racetrack, in terms of the personality, if you will, of the strip at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, give me a little bit of the book on the racetrack as the crew chief would be looking at it. It's uh, it's fast. It's always really good surface area. It's the rubber, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's higher altitude. So the air's thinner, but we can still make a pretty good amount of horsepower. So aerodynamically, the cars, especially the dragsters get through the air a little easier because the air's thinner, Yep. but, uh, we can still make good power. So, uh, you can really run quick and fast there, you know, and, uh, we always look forward to going there because we just know that it's going to be a good racing surface. And, uh, you know, we had a, you know, going to Pomona and, or Phoenix and Pomona, they're both pretty good tracks too, but, uh, different conditions than we normally race with them at. But, uh, so it'll, it'll be, uh, it'll be fast. I just, you know, before I called you normal thing here at the shop, my office looking at what the weather might be like when we get there, you know, what's it saying? About it, what's know, it but, saying? <laughs> It's saying uh, cool, nice, low seventies, low mid seventies. Yeah, so I think it should be uh, should be pretty fast. You know, it, it's interesting. My my wife, she's kind of retired now, and she came with us to Phoenix, and we stayed on the road to Pomona, and she'd never really done that before, and she rode in the tow vehicle in Phoenix, and we ended up winning. So the guy said, "Well, you got to keep doing that." <laughs> she's usually not. She didn't really have to go to the races every day. You know, she rather just lay by the pool probably come yeah. out on Sunday but they made her come out and now it's like she has to go to every race so far <laughs> <laughs> so so uh we had a good time together you know out there for 12 days but uh yeah, she likes going to Vegas anyway, so I think she'd probably go no matter what. But. I was going to say, this is that this may be an easier one to coax her to than some uh, midsummer in the Midwest somewhere where it's going to be 100 degrees. So, yeah, this, this, yeah. May, be, this may be an easy sell. Exactly. <laughs> well, Mike, thanks for taking the time today. Certainly appreciate it. Congratulations on the way this season has started. It's going to be really fun to watch the Phillips Connect uh, car over the course of the year. And you got a great thing going, man. I hope you guys can keep the momentum up. Yeah, we're really excited and, uh, and I appreciate the time, Brian. He's Mike Green. We'll be right back with some closing thoughts here in this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. And so back here with some final thoughts on this episode of the NHRA Insider. Really fun to talk to Justin Ashley and Mike Green to get really both perspectives on their race-winning weekend and really weekends as they've gone back-to-back in Phoenix and Pomona. You can really tell why these guys work well together in terms of their approach, in terms of the way they even speak and their mannerisms and their kind of mentality and attitudes. Um, You can hear the respect that Justin Ashley has for Mike Green and Tommy DeLago working on that car. You can certainly hear the respect that Mike Green has for the job Justin Ashley does in the seat. And what we're seeing is that magical thing in drag racing that happens when the machine is well-oiled and when all the parts and pieces and all the gears are meshed together, whether it's from the wrenches in the back of the car to the driver in the front of the car, those are the things that need to all work in unison for things to go correctly. And we have seen poetry in motion from that team over the last couple of races. Now, it doesn't get any easier from here for them or anybody else. We're going four-wide racing in Vegas. Next week's episode of the NHRA Insider, I will reconvene the 
judge, jury, and executioner of Kevin McKenna and Tony Pedragon to talk a little bit about the four-wide race, kind of what we should be looking for in any of the upcoming scuttlebutt on the season. Car car counts are looking great for Vegas, and our crowd count is going to be great in Vegas as well. Who doesn't want to go to that city? We're fortunate enough to visit it twice a year, and each time has a much different and exciting level of energy, whether it's the uniqueness of the four-wide race in the spring or the throwdown before SEMA in the fall. It is always a great place to go racing. It's been a really great, really great start to this NHRA season in 2023. Can't wait to keep it going in Vegas, but we have a weekend off. Hopefully, you're going to have some time to rest and relax, maybe go to your local drag strip and hang out, and then tune back in to hear us next week and watch us next week weekend in Las Vegas. I'm Brian Loans. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And as always, make sure you follow on NHRA's social media channels to get all the news and updates from inside the sport, all the great video content our ever-expanding crew of editors and content creators are making, and all the great inside stories you can find on NHRA.com from Phil Burgess, Kevin McKenna, and the talented writers of National Dragster. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.